0: it's friday april 23rd i'm oscar ramirez in los angeles and this is the daily dive after the guilty verdicts in the george floyd murder case a lot of attention has been turned to what's next district attorneys and law enforcement researchers say that with this decision more prosecutors are going to be willing to charge police officers in shootings with increased attention to police misconduct in this high-profile conviction Prosecutors may be more aggressive in these cases. Dan Frosch, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for what to expect. Next, fake doses of the Pfizer vaccine have been spotted in Mexico and Poland as criminals take advantage of the high demand across the world. There's no indication that this is happening in the U.S., so no need to worry. But investigators said about 80 people in Mexico got fake shots, and in Poland, vials that were labeled as vaccine contained anti-wrinkle treatment. Jared Hopkins farmer reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for these counterfeit vaccines. Finally, President Biden has announced new climate goals in an effort to convince the world that the U.S. is once again a leader when combating climate change. Biden announced that the country will aim to cut its greenhouse gas emissions by 50 to 52 percent below 2005 levels and wants to do it by 2030. Andrew Friedman, climate and energy reporter at Axios, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: We should
2: not mistake a guilty verdict in this case as evidence that the persistence problem of police misconduct has been solved or that the divide between law enforcement and so many of the communities they serve has been bridged. It has not. Joining
0: us now is Dan Frosch, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Dan. My pleasure. A lot of people are looking toward what's next after the Derek Chauvin verdict. As a reminder, he was found guilty on all three counts, second-degree third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter. So people are looking at what's next, and a lot of district attorneys and law enforcement researchers are saying that this might uh, make prosecutors more willing to charge police officers when it comes to shootings and deaths and things like that and excessive use of force cases. So, Dan, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing out there. I think we have
1: to remember that this case is really unusual in terms of the conviction that was uh, won by the prosecutors. It is very rare to get a conviction in a fatal shooting involving police officers of the 140 cops who were charged in fatal shootings since 2005. Only seven were convicted of murder and and 37 were convicted of lesser crimes, according to a, uh, a research at Bowling Green State University. So it's exceedingly rare to get one of these convictions. But I think what we're seeing is that because of a confluence of factors, greater public awareness around alleged police misconduct, video incidents like this one, and the sense that there is greater pressure on district attorneys, who we have to remember are by and large elected, that we will see more action in terms of some of these DAs deciding to prosecute police officers because they think they might be able to get a conviction in the wake of the Chauvin case.
0: You were mentioning some of the numbers. 140 police officers charged in fatal shootings since 2005 only seven convicted of Mm -hmm. murder. We're seeing about a thousand deadly police shootings a year, according to some of those Bowling Green State University numbers. So that just kind Mm -hmm. of illustrates even how few charges we get out of it. And a lot of it is because there's very high standards for charging police. They're giving a lot of leeway to use force when they're encountering the public for a variety of reasons, you know, their safety, the safety of others and all that.
1: That's absolutely right. And you know, we have to remember that usually in these cases, we will see sort of split second decisions made by law enforcement. And maybe that decision is right and maybe that decision is wrong. But law enforcement in general in these cases have been able to successfully use that sort of defense to preclude any convictions or even charges. The Chauvin case was different because obviously there was no split second decision. Chauvin sat, kneeled on George Floyd for over nine minutes. There was no imminent fear of danger or any of the other reasons that police officers accused of misconduct in fatal shootings often use. So this case is different in that regard, but in terms of your larger point, yes, there are very few convictions because law enforcement are given a wide latitude in terms of the powers they have to protect life And their own ability to use deadly force.
0: So, tell me a little bit more about kind of the ebb and flow of how we see these charges come through. Because you made note in your article about the death of Michael Brown in Ferguson in 2014. Mm -hmm. And after that, we did see a rise in officers being charged. Then it kind of tapered back off. And then obviously, George Floyd happened. And then, you know, so they expect that this might even happen more.
1: That's absolutely right. I mean, and the same goes for sort of police reform legislation. We see this ebb and flow of prosecutions, police reform legislation around high-profile incidents when there is pressure on politicians, there's pressure on district attorneys who, as I mentioned before, are elected to take action. And when the public raises its voice collectively, as we saw last summer, that pressure builds. And then, you know, the challenge is when that public pressure dissipates, we sort of revert back to where things were before. And so you don't necessarily see prosecutors perhaps taking a harder look at some of these cases because you know, prosecutors will only press charges in cases where they think they can earn a conviction. And whether or not cases move forward often time depends on the public consciousness at a particular moment in history and any sort of recent precedent in cases like the George Floyd case, like what we're seeing now, which experts think could potentially, at least in the short term, lead to a rise in prosecutions of officers.
0: Dan Frosch, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Glad to be here. Thanks so much for having me.
3: And then
2: in, in Poland, there was a vaccines or a or, or purported vaccine that was recovered in a man's apartment. And that made its way to Pfizer's laboratory here in the US for testing, uh, where Pfizer also determined that it was not authentic.
0: Joining us now is Jared Hopkins, pharma reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Jared. Thanks for having me. We've been talking a little bit about fraud when it comes to vaccines recently on the podcast. We were talking about vaccination card fraud, you know, people selling these bogus vaccination cards or blank vaccination cards. But now we're also seeing something with regards to actual fake doses of the vaccine. And luckily, this isn't something that we have to worry about here in the United States with these cases that we're going to talk about happened abroad. But Pfizer was able to identify some fake COVID-19 shots in Mexico and Poland. So, uh, you know, the demand is high in a lot of places in the world. And, you know, you got to watch out for these scams. So, Jared, tell us a little bit about what Pfizer found out with some of their phony vaccine shots.
2: Pfizer has so far identified in Mexico and Poland the first confirmed examples of the counterfeit of of its COVID vaccine that it developed with uh, BioNTech. So in Mexico, what happened was there were about 80 people in a clinic who apparently received a a fake vaccine. They were being charged $1,000 a dose. Nobody appears to have been harmed in that case. But Pfizer did internal testing. They received the vials and the substance and they ship it up to their laboratory in uh, Connecticut and they have chemists and and other sort of scientists sort of do some testing and uh, analysis to determine that it's not the real vaccine. And then in Poland there was a vaccines or or, or a perpetrated vaccine that was recovered in a man's apartment and that made its way to Pfizer's laboratory here in the U.S. for testing uh, where Pfizer also determined that it was not authentic.
0: Now, in the case of Mexico, they said that they found the vials in like a beach style beer cooler. The numbers that were on the doses, uh, you know, the lot numbers and all that didn't match to what was sent to Mexico, also had wrong expiration dates. So those were other telltale signs. In Poland, it was a little weirder because they said that it could have been anti-wrinkle medication or treatment or something that what was in those vials.
2: So apparently there were a number of vials that were recovered at this individual's apartment. According to local authorities, there were some vials that were labeled as the Pfizer vaccine. There were also containers that appeared to have contained an anti-wrinkle treatment. So what might have happened is that the anti-wrinkle treatment bottles were relabeled as the COVID vaccine. Uh, That's possible. What Pfizer did find when they did their testing was that the vaccine likely contained a substance that is often found in anti-wrinkle treatments.
0: So these are the first cases that we know of these counterfeit vaccines, uh, as we mentioned, Mexico and Poland. But they've already shut down, at least the government and and the uh, arm that's investigating these for Department of Homeland Security. They've shut down a ton of websites already, at least that were saying they either have vaccines or trying to maybe get people's personal information. I think that part of it is, is what they were most concentrated on, those types of websites. So they've already shut down a few of those things.
2: If you could step back for a second, the U.S. government and other agencies around the world, since the pandemic began, have been investigating pandemic-related fraud. And we're talking about anything from testing kits that are phony to masks to sort of um, uh, PPE, personal protective equipment. And then sort of at some point last year in the U.S. uh, federal agency, Department of Homeland Security, a, a part of that shifted to focus on vaccines, which were then still being tested. And then what eventually began to crop up are online websites that often are pretending or casting themselves falsely to be representatives of the pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer or Moderna, another vaccine maker. And what they're looking for is they're looking for personal information from people to submit financial information. There is no product that's going to be shipped. There's no vaccine there's no counterfeit vaccine. This is just a a good old fashioned online scam where you just have to persuade people. And so those have been very, very common. There's been a number that have been shut down and seized by the government. And now when there's actual physical counterfeit vaccines, what security experts say is we're sort of like entering into a next natural phase that was sort of expected after sort of online scamming starts.
0: We've talked about this before about the intense. Security surrounding the vaccines, at least here in the United States and other places too. But, you know, it's easier to distribute these fake COVID vaccines, these counterfeits, than it would be to steal the legitimate ones and get those out to people.
2: The security around the actual vaccines is very intense right now. And the measures include dummy trucks, you know, to sort of throw off thieves of, of where the vaccines are being transported and in the US they're being transported under under tight security with law enforcement protection. Pfizer is, is tracking and their vaccines with special tracking devices, as is like UPS and FedEx. So, so we haven't really seen you know thieves going after these vaccines, but you get into counterfeiting, particularly outside the United States, counterfeiting is sort of a booming business. Uh, in Europe and, and Latin America, counterfeiting prescription drugs, expensive cancer drugs, uh, for example, and, and, and other sorts of the like. And it's uh, you know $200 billion industry here for criminals. And COVID vaccines are sort of just the latest opportunity for that, particularly because the vaccines are in high demand. There's limited supply. And in particularly in countries that have a history of prescription drug counterfeiting is where people are very vulnerable.
0: Jared Hopkins, pharma reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks
3: for having me. By maintaining those investments and putting these people to work, the United States sets out on the road to cut greenhouse gases in half, in half by the end of this decade.
0: Joining us now is Andrew Friedman, climate and energy reporter at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Andrew.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: President Biden announced Thursday that America would try to cut its greenhouse gas emissions by about 50 to 52 percent below 2005 levels. He wants to do this by 2030. So a pretty ambitious goal. But a lot of people said, uh, at least he and the administration have said that it's totally doable. So, Andrew, tell us a little bit about uh, a little more about what we heard from President Biden on this. We
3: heard a pretty bold target compared to where we've been and where we are. President Obama's emission target was 26 to 28% below 2005 levels by 2025. So this is giving us five extra years, but about double the target in terms of ambition. They think it's doable. They think it's doable by spurring the private sector growth, innovative technologies, deploying electric vehicles, all sorts of things. It was partly a result of Biden used the event, the Climate Summit, to kind of announce America's re-emergence on the world stage when it comes to the climate negotiations and to try to prod other countries to encourage them to also come forward with more ambitious targets through 2030.
0: Tell me a little bit about, I know you mentioned a couple things, But how do we get there? Because there's a lot that has to be done to be able to get us to this point.
3: It is essentially a whole scale retooling of the American economy. Now, that sounds really, really lofty and scary. However, you know, there's a lot of things that are being done anyway in terms of just technological innovation. Electric vehicles are going to become cheaper than traditional cars sometime in the next 10 years. So they're trying to move that up to make it in the more near future. It means decarbonizing the power sector, which they already had a goal for. Basically, what they did was they went out and talked to people who study different sectors of the economy. So different government agencies and private sector groups, and you know everyone from airline executives to the heads of major oil companies to try to figure out what they thought was ambitious and doable for their domain. So the airlines thought that they could reduce by X amount. The power plant operators thought they could reduce by Y amount. And then if you add all of those up, you get to something like this particular target. What they didn't say was what depended on congressional action and what depended on what might depend on regulatory action. So they were vague on those details.
0: I did have a question, though. How does the pandemic fit into all of this? Because we saw global emissions fall in 2020. The world stopped for a period of weeks, it seemed like, or or even longer, right? People weren't driving, people weren't traveling, all of that. And we're already on track to rebound, after this decline. So how does this all figure into that?
3: We are on track to rebound after the decline. I think it's humbling when you look at what happened uh, with the world kind of stopping activities in many different parts of the world and then think, okay, well, that caused the seven to 8% global emissions drop. And now we're ticking back up quickly. (laughs) Right. So, It demonstrated what was possible by stopping in this awful way and showed where we're still going in business as usual sort of course of action. In a way, it showed the enormity of the challenge that we're facing because it didn't result in even deeper emissions and it's resulting in in this particular upswing too.
0: What do we do about other countries? Because, you know, you mentioned how this is kind of, putting the U.S. back on the world stage when it comes to climate, but we also have huge emitters in China and India. And I think China hasn't even fully confirmed, you know, what they want to do by 2030, things like that. So, uh, you know, how do we push these other countries to also enact action?
3: Probably the best approach is to try to keep diplomatic channels open. John Kerry's initiatives of actually going over there and talking to them and trying to separate climate out from the areas that we have a lot of tension with them over seems to be what the approach is right now. With India, they're trying to do things like partnerships for technological innovation, trying to get them to more quickly adopt solar energy, skipping over more coal plants. With China, though, it's really complicated. We need China to act in order to succeed in this goal globally. China recognizes that they have this issue. They have domestic reasons to act. They did say a vague new commitment starting to curtail their coal consumption by 2030, but their target is a carbon neutrality by 2060. So they do have goals. They are actually the world leader in solar technology. They're a world leader in a lot of the things that we need for clean tech. So. The argument that, well, we need China and India to act and they're not doing anything is one that's commonly heard on Capitol Hill. And it's not quite true. Plus, if you look at historically, who is responsible for putting all this stuff into the air and causing today's problem, they're right when they say it's the United States, it's Europe, it's the industrialized world. You know, you guys should be going to make deeper cuts more quickly than we should be. But the problem is that right now they're number one and India is creeping up pretty quickly. Right.
0: Andrew Friedman, climate and energy reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment Give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.